Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Our love and thanks to Brady and Diana for leading us in worship. We are especially in prayer this morning for the situation in Israel. Beloved, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for it. It was a blessing as well as Women of Grace began again this week. Our women's ministry here at Harrison Hills and the opportunity the following night to go and spend an evening with the author of our study as well. So I pray that blessed our ladies and has really lit a fire for your study this quarter. If you've not signed up yet for that study, please see Diana Perez or Dawn. They will get you that study guide and material. I know we ran out of the first round of of books with overwhelming response, so we have ordered more. So ladies, every Thursday evening, 6 p.m., here at Harrison Hills, you are going to be blessed. Not only by this study, but by a chance to get to know some of the greatest, most incredible women God has placed among us as well. You know, community, fellowship, and friendship that is developed over the Word of God is essential to running the race well. So sign up in the foyer. Women of grace, be there, be blessed. Well, this morning before we launch into Gethsemane once again, put a finger in Mark if you would, and turn with me quickly to Romans 1. Romans 1. Now most, when you hear Romans 1, we immediately think of the latter portion of that chapter, beginning with verse 18, which very famously and accurately, with great accuracy, describes and predicts what happens to a culture that's under divine judgment. What, what flourishes when cultural rot and decay has set in? But before one even gets to that very sobering part of Romans 1, we have the glorious beginning of the doctrinally rich, the theological treasure trove that is the book of Romans. There in the opening of this letter to the church in Rome, Paul opens with a glorious exaltation of the gospel. And there Paul not only looks to the gospel, but Paul makes a declaration concerning himself and the gospel. Paul shares these truths to not only convey his heart, as a preacher of that glorious gospel, but because they apply to everyone who would name the name of Christ. Tucked away in the opening of Romans, we have what are known as Paul's three great I am statements. Now look with me quickly to verse 14. Chapter 1, verse 14, it begins how? I am. Now to verse 15, it begins, I am. And finally, verse 16 beginning, I am. Now, as a Christian, we must ask, what is our relationship to this message of the gospel that we are to proclaim? Whether as a preacher from the pulpit, or as a mom with a neighbor, or a dad with a co-worker, how does Paul describe our relationship with this incredible message? Well, the first of Paul's three great I am's there in verse 14 Paul says, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. I am under obligation. That's a fascinating statement by Paul, isn't it? And it raises immediate questions. How can Paul be under obligation to these people when the gospel's free? 
And why is Paul indebted to people at a church in Rome that he's never even met? Why? Consider that, saints. Why are we under obligation for something that is free to people we've never met? In fact, Paul casts the widest net concerning that obligation. Greek and barbarian, wise and foolish. In other words, we would say that our obligation runs from the east to the west. Why? Why are we to be obligated to people we have never met with something that is free? Well, ironically, it is the very freeness of the gospel in which we ourselves received it that brings with it the obligation. It is because it is free that the only way to pay that debt is to give it away. Freely you have received, freely give. Isn't it incredible to consider a gift so great that the only way to pay for it As a man or woman under obligation, the only way to pay for it is to give it away. Today, that's a message the American church would struggle to hear, that we are a people under obligation. The slightest hint that there is a mandate that comes with the gospel, that church is not a spectator sport, is a message that does not fill the pews. That being a Christian makes you a doulos, yasu Christu, a slave of Christ. That we live as people under obligation. Obligation in how we live. Obligation in how we give. Obligation to speak the truth in love, no matter the cost. Christianity is not on our terms. So that sounds like legalism, pastor. No. Legalism is when you make up your own rules and you follow those made-up rules. Christianity carries a call to obedience. It is a call to obligation. A message so great and received so freely that the only way to pay that obligation is to give it away. So Paul's first great I am, I am under obligation. Second, in verse 15, Paul says, I am eager I've often been described that way. I am eager. Now, why was Paul eager? Well, specifically here, because Rome was a cesspool. It was terrible. It was a culture in utter decay and rot. And Paul knew that there is only one message that could change that culture. We live in a very political time. Heading into 2024 especially, that will seem to suck all the oxygen out of the room. That is precisely what Rome was in that day. But Paul knew, if you want to change a culture, it comes through the gospel. There is no political answer to a spiritual problem. Therefore, Paul is eager. Not to run for city council or mayor, to take the Senate in Rome for Jesus. Paul is eager to preach the gospel. Paul is eager to fulfill his obligation. That is God's plan to change a culture, to change a city. It will not be accomplished through any political means. So Paul is under obligation, one. He is eager, two. And finally, number three, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What is the power of God unto salvation? The gospel. God has told us where he has placed his power. And it's not in kings and it's not in princes. It's not in politicians. It's not in economies. It's not in taking over the media or the government. Go vote. Yes, be involved. Wonderful. Find the most godly candidate or even be the most godly candidate. But the power of God is in the gospel. And in the preaching of the gospel. And of that we are not ashamed. We are called today in the place in which we live to be a people under obligation. To eagerly share the power of God of which we are not ashamed or afraid. Saints, the times that are approaching are going to challenge the fabric of our faith. We must know the anchors that hold. And Paul's three great I am's are a great place to start. Amen? Amen. Well, turning back to Mark now, if you will, hope you kept your finger there. Last week, we entered, well, what is truly hallowed ground of Scripture. Having left the upper room, exiting out of the eastern gate, across the Kidron Valley, across the stream of blood that flowed through it, up the Mount of Olives, having made a devastating prediction along the way. Last week we saw that Jesus left eight of his disciples at the gate, and he took Peter and James and John into the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus takes his inner circle because They need to understand this. They need to see this. They need to learn from this. Jesus is going to give his inner circle a a front row seat to one of the most difficult struggles that human flesh has ever seen. That's to happen right here in the garden. You'll recall that translated Gethsemane means olive press. It was a garden outside the city walls of Jerusalem where olives could be squeezed. And pressed until oil is extracted. And as we said last week, no greater analogy could be chosen than the very name and purpose where our scene unfolds this last week. For it is that precisely that will happen to our Lord. He will be pressed like no one ever has in history. He will be squeezed until blood mixed with sweat drips down his forehead. And there in the garden, as Luke 22 told us, it was an hour of great spiritual darkness. Jesus will once again face temptation, his greatest temptation to date. And of course, the goal of Satan being what? To stop the cross by any means necessary. As Jesus went in to pray, we witness a Jesus we've never seen before. Jesus began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Now we know that Jesus was a man of sorrows. That he was well acquainted with grief, Isaiah tells us. That's nothing new. Jesus was a man of sorrows. But this... We had to dig into these words and these terms and these descriptions to get into the mind and the heart of Christ. 
We need to understand what force, what reason could cause such a, a visceral reaction. Blood dripping down as his, as his subcutaneous capillaries have, have dilated and they burst. That needs to make sense. Anguish that nearly stopped his heart. Grieved to the point of death. That means in the Greek, grieved to the point of death. That needs to make sense. Our first clue came in the English word distressed. And the English utterly failed us there. Betrayed a massive truth about the forces that were coming to bear on Jesus that night. Now word there you will remember, ekthombeo. We don't understand the garden, beloved, unless we understand ekthombeo. Recall that that means that something has caused Jesus to be amazed. It has caused Jesus to be terrified or alarmed, meaning it would be a feeling or an emotion or a state of being that's causing Jesus to be stunned because he's never felt it before. He's experienced something completely new. He's having a feeling never known before. And this, this sounds utterly strange in our hearing, doesn't it? In the face of preaching the utter sovereignty and omniscience of God, how is it here that the second person of the Trinity can experience something new? Well, grasp that, and you'll grasp the garden. What could cause God in human flesh amazement, ekthombeo. Well, humanly speaking for us, these would have been appropriate response to the events. The betrayal of those closest to him, the scandal of Judas, the, the coming scourging with the cat of nine tails, the excruciating death of asphyxiation that comes by crucifixion. For you and I, that could be enough to perhaps stop a heart, to invoke incredibly in, Incredible stress markers, but not for Jesus. He knew all of these things from the beginning. To understand ekthombeo, we need to understand, we needed to understand certain aspects of the nature of Christ, didn't we? That Christ had never known sin, and now he would be the bearer of sin. That having existed before time in perfect Trinitarian love and harmony with the Father, he would now be the object of the Father's wrath. And not just a dose of wrath, but an eternity of wrath poured out in a moment. Jesus will be crushed by the very one he has coexisted in perfection with for all eternity past. Those truths alone begin to focus us on understanding the anguish of our Savior there in that garden. But it went even deeper than that, if you can imagine. As we then considered what it meant for Jesus himself to be the vessel for this wrath. Now for you and I to receive the wrath of God as people who have sinned, we have fashioned the just cup of God's wrath to be poured into. A sinful vessel being a cup to receive wrath. That is the natural course. But God intervened of fallen man. It fits. Sinful man is formed and fashioned to receive just such a thing. But Jesus has never known sin. 
He doesn't even possess the capacity to sin. And thus, that led us last week into exploring what, what the temptation of Jesus throughout, throughout his life out in the wilderness, here in the garden, what it looked like. How was it different from the temptation that, that you and I experience? Meaning we are tempted as, as creatures that are capable of sin. We're attacked and we're targeted at our weak points. We're assaulted by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and, and the pride of life. We're drawn away, as James tells us, by our own flesh. Our battlefield on the field of temptation, our, our fight is with the sinful impulses that reside within us. Not with Jesus. He is impeccable. You and I are merely sinful beings that are tempted to more sin. His is perfection. Trinitarian God perfection now assaulted with the sin of another. That is an awful weight. That's the awful glory of Gethsemane. That's a Savior who can more than sympathize with us in temptation. For he has known it in a more awesome way than you or I could ever imagine. There in the garden as Jesus was squeezed with every hound of hell pulsating to stop the cross, we hear the impassioned plea from the Savior. In verses 35, falling to the ground, he began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Meaning, is there a way? within your perfection, within your plan to accomplish redemption. I have spent every moment of every day before your shining face. I've never been, I've never had a time, I've never known a time where I've not been in communion and in perfect fellowship with you. And now not only will you turn your face from me and forsake me, but I will endure an eternity of wrath in a moment of time, crushed by the Father that I am so intertwined with that to see me, he says in John, is to see the Father. To know me is to know the Father. That's the relationship. And in the throes of this struggle that only perfection being assaulted could comprehend, Christ cried out to his Father, as a child lifting his arms for help, crying, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Jesus was not weak. This is not a prayer of weakness. This is a prayer of holiness. Because it is precisely in Jesus' holiness, as we said, in which he was tempted. You understand that? And in a final lament, we beheld our Savior make a statement that should be put on par with it is finished on the cross. Or it is, he is risen from the tomb. What does Jesus declare? Yet not I will, but what you will. As heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, we rejoice at the perfect obedience of our substitute. 
Understand that all this matters to our salvation. Jesus' obedience here. Jesus' perfect submission here matters to our salvation. We must see these acts of perfect obedience with great joy. Why? We always look to the death of Christ, the death of Christ as purchasing our redemption. And yes, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. But understand, that was not enough. Understand this, grab hold of this, saints. If the cross were enough, we could have done this entire transaction in a weekend. Jesus, come on the scene, out of nowhere, sacrifice, boom, done, gone, paid. But that wasn't enough. Yes, Jesus' perfect death must be applied to our account. But as we have taught many times, that only brings your sin debt account to zero. It wipes out our debt. As Steve Lawson quips, zeros don't get into heaven. We must have a positive righteousness credited to our account. And that comes from Jesus' perfect life. Jesus' perfect submission. That is why our hearts should leap within us when we read, Yet not what I will, but what you will. (laughs) Not only because of what it teaches us about how we are supposed to live, but because Jesus was our law-keeping substitute. He lived a perfect life as our substitute. Where you and I failed, he was perfect. That life is just as important as his death. We needed both to secure the salvation of the elect. Now, I know that that's an extended review of, of what we covered last week, but most necessary... Beloved, the amount of pure information, of theology, of doctrine, and application that we draw from Jesus in Gethsemane is immense. We need to hear it twice, and three times, and perhaps four. Well, today in our scene, we continue in that beautiful and dreadful garden. We're now likely between 2 and 3 a.m., Within 12 hours now, Jesus will be hanging on the cross. And today's text will take us right up to the moment of Jesus' betrayal and arrest. A beloved buried within our scene today are jewels of beauty for us to mine as we continue our march toward Calvary. So with that, let us look to our further text of Gethsemane. Mark 14, 37 through 42. Mark 14. 37 through 42. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not keep watch for an hour? Keeping watching, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. 
Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by this text. Lord, to be brought there by Mark into the garden with you, with Peter, James, and John. Lord, seeing ourselves in them more than we wish to admit. Holy Spirit, you know the need of each one that has walked in here today, and your word is sufficient to meet that need. We ask, Lord, today that you would illuminate that for us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, about nine years ago, your pastor, perhaps foolishly, risked getting arrested in Germany. I had driven south to Worms. It's about 40 miles to the south of Frankfurt to see a very famous cathedral there made made famous by Martin Luther's stand where he famously proclaimed to the Roman emperor, unless someone can show me from these books and from Holy Scripture the error in my thinking, I will not and cannot recant. Here I stand, I can do no other. God, help me. Well, the precise location where this happened was not actually in the cathedral. It was, it was in a building next to it that's no longer there. It's now kind of a, a garden of sorts alongside of it. And all that remains is a plaque on the ground, on the exact location Luther stood when he uttered those famous words. Now, sadly, when I got there, the garden area was closed off for renovation and maintenance, Tall fences surrounded the entire garden. There was no way I was leaving Germany without having stood in the place that Luther stood. So I looked left, I looked right, didn't see anyone, and up and over the fence I went. Well, I quickly found the plaque, took a moment to stand there and appreciate it. Of course, I took the the requisite selfie, right? Before making my less than stealthy getaway. Sure, I was going to get nabbed, but thankfully I didn't. Even as we look back to that day, April 18th, 1521, at that great cathedral in Germany, where all the powers of Europe were now assembled, where you had the Roman emperor in all of his robes and dignity. You had the papal delegates, the, the bishops and the archbishops of all the Catholic realms of Europe. One author writes that, quote, it was the most imposing array of power possible on the face of the earth of that day. We realize that. All gathered in the great cathedral against one lone man, Dr. Martin Luther, on trial for his life, close quote. But it's not that immense day and those famous lines that draw our gaze this morning. No, it's the night before. Luther was supposed to appear. And there in his room, his cell, being held the night before, in Luther's fear and his distress, he cried out in prayer. And unknown to Luther, someone was listening and writing everything Luther was saying. R.C. Sproul referred to this night as Luther's Gethsemane. You know, often when we think about the Reformation, we may 
think about the nailing of, these, of the 95 theses on the church door or perhaps Luther's famous stand at, as the, the launch or the linchpin of the Reformation. Just like our, with our Lord, we look to the cross and we look to the resurrection as the hallmarks and the linchpins of redemptive history to the, the launch of our salvation. But without Gethsemane, without the toiling of prayer and submission, without the garden, there was no cross. There was no resurrection. For Luther, without that night of pulsating prayer, there was no stand to make the following morning. Why? Because his heart most certainly would have failed him from fear. The Reformation wasn't secured when Luther nailed his thesis or when he made his famous stand. It was secured in a dark room, crying out in prayer. There was no sleeping for Luther, only the impassioned plea of a distressed heart. So with that, beloved, let us look to our first verse, verse 37, verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not keep watch for one hour? This is an incredible verse. What looks like a, a simple rebuke or, or something we may skim over in our reading is positively charged with beautiful truth. Look with me at the beginning and he came and found them sleeping. Now, this would be Peter, James, and John. And he came and found them sleeping. What's beautiful about that? Well, first, by way of reminder for us, what exactly is wrong with sleep here? Since when is sleep bad? Why be rebuked for sleeping? Multiple times. Now, recall, as we taught last week, they were not to sleep. Why? To ward off temptation. What temptation? What was the temptation in this moment for the disciples? Well, just like on the Mount of Transfiguration, when they slept, the sleeping was a symptom of the heart sin. They were sleeping from sorrow, Luke's gospel tells us. They were being tempted to despair. They were being tempted to fear. Fatalism was creeping in that all is lost. So much so that if, if we take counsel of those stressors, taking our eye off the Savior and onto the, the circumstances we see coming, that our body is going to do what our body does to protect itself during mental anguish. Sleep isn't bad unless that sleep is a result of fear. When he says, do not fear, when you despair, when he says to be of good cheer, when he, you see your dreams fading away, even though he's told you in three days, I will rise again. The same could be said for sleeplessness. That could be a symptom of heart sin. Worry, anxiety, racing thoughts, not resting in our Savior. These are manifestations of the heart that Jesus is exposing and warning of. And yet we highlighted at the outset of verse 37 here that there's great beauty contained within. Beloved, what is Jesus going through at this very moment? 
We've taken great pains to extol the details, have we not? And yet in the midst of this epic struggle of cosmic, divine proportions, who is Jesus concerned about? His disciples. He would have been more than justified as blood flows from his brow to take a little me time. But he is the good shepherd. We know what he is going through. The literal Trinitarian pain. And in the midst of that, he goes to check on his disciples. And in fact, we'll multiple times that night. What a savior. What a good shepherd. Don't miss those truths, beloved, or we're going to miss the heart of our savior in the text. And who does Jesus single out? Peter. (laughs) Why Peter? James and John are no doubt doubt catching a snooze too. But Peter was the leader. Peter was the one who had made such bold proclamations of fighting and dying for the Lord. Jesus singles Peter out because Peter singled himself out. And look out. What does Jesus say? First word out of Jesus' mouth. Simon, oh no, oh no. Beloved, we haven't heard that name since all the way back in Mark 3.16, if you can remember back that many years. That's Peter's pre-conversion name. This is a subtle rebuke to Peter. I have named you Petros. I've called you a rock. You're not being a rock. No one could stand upon you. You can't even hold yourself up right now. You're not the immovable, unshakable Petros. You are succumbing, Peter. This is your old man. Imagine Peter in this moment. Just imagine. Weary and in the sleep. And there you are awoken to the master. Standing over you, probably looking away you've never seen him before. Agony on his face like you've never seen. Blood on his brow. And he calls you Simon. Poor Peter. And yet, beloved, it is so very special to read these kinds of accounts in Mark. When you consider that Mark, our author, got all his information... From Peter. For this gospel. What a complete telling of humility. We get all the dirty laundry. That's yet one more reason to trust scripture, by the way. Our heroes, our leaders are not lionized. We see every weakness. Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not keep watch for one hour? where our good shepherd is experiencing near heart-stopping agony, coming even in that state to check on you, Peter. And you can't even stay awake for an hour. Now, why is this so important to Jesus in this moment? Why? Is, Is he somehow reliant upon their emotional support? Does Jesus need them right now? I have a hard news flash for you. Jesus has never needed anything from anyone. We serve at the pleasure of the king. He doesn't need us. 
But as a loving father, he allows us to feebly and often clumsily walk with him as purveyors of his glorious gospel. Like a father who takes joy in completing a task that is easily done by himself, but instead he has daddy's little helper. We take joy in sharing that with our children. What Jesus does here, his rebuke he brings to Peter, indeed to all of them, he does for their good. And Jesus speaks this plainly. Look with me to verse 38. Verse 38. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. It's for them. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter, outward circumstances are coming that are going to try your very soul. Satan desires to sift you like wheat, Peter. Watch and pray. We've seen that before. We've seen this before. We've seen this language before. Our Old Testament gurus will recognize that. That's Nehemiah. Leading his people to rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. Stand on the wall. Watch and pray. Work and pray. Eyes open. Don't we remember in Nehemiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, they they didn't want Jerusalem to be rebuilt, did they? So they they used fear and deceit and every kind of ruse to try and stop the building. And what was Nehemiah's defense? Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God because of them, because of the enemy. We set a watch against them day and night. Notice the order that Jesus gives here, that he gives Peter, that he gives to all of us. This is the order of wisdom. This is the order of effective warfare. Look at the order, saints. One, watch. Two, pray. The command to watch and pray precede, meaning they come before the warning about temptation. Meaning we do not wait for temptation to come before we are vigilant and pray. Oftentimes it's too late by them. By then. You know, America is home to one of the greatest fighting forces in the world, the Navy SEALs. But we don't come upon a battle as a nation and start training our SEALs. We train them now. If we waited for war to train, it's too late. First watch. Be vigilant. Be alert. Be wise. Be forward-looking. Know your enemy. Know your own weaknesses. Put up guardrails. And then pray. Pray without ceasing. Live in a continual attitude and disposition of prayer as natural as breathing so that when Satan declares war, when your own flesh declares war and desires to destroy you, your Navy SEALs are trained. They are already waiting, awake, alert, and prayerful. Understand this, saints. Write this down if you need to. Prayer in the realm of temptation is most effective. It is most powerful when it is preventative. Understand that. When Jesus himself taught us how to pray, 
in the Lord's Prayer, he demonstrated for us that prayer is meant to be largely preventative. We pray, lead us not into temptation. Before we even get there, we pray. We watch and pray. Someone going to get that? <laughs> stop simply, beloved, stop simply using prayer as your weapon in the battle. But train with it. Build yourself up with it. When I used to train pilots, preparing them for their exams and, and their check rides and flight simulators and in the aircraft, our training was ten times harder than their exam would ever be. Their check ride. Their check ride and their exam seemed easy after that kind of training. And so it is. And so it is. Back to our text. Jesus makes a clear observation here at the end of verse 38. Here the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, beloved, willpower will not empower to overpower. Willpower will not empower to overpower. That's a very basic principle even of biblical counseling. If you are relying on your willpower to overcome something, to not succumb to temptation, your battle is already lost. You're done. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What we would describe as willpower is not the means nor the mechanism that God gives the Christian to live an overcoming and holy life. Go ahead and find willpower in Scripture. It's not there. Not in word or in concept. In fact, God says that it is not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Though willpower is often, often, the first arrow we pull out of our quiver when the fight comes. And Jesus says, no. That's not the way, Peter. You can't will yourself awake. That's not how humans work in general, by the way. They work on the principle of a greater affection. Meaning they, want to, they have to want something else more than that object. That's how you're wired. Now, for the Christian, it's the same. But the object of our affection has changed. We still have a greater affection. We're still wired that way. But that greater affection is Christ. It's a desire to be obedient to him and to love him. That is our higher affection. We want him more than that fleeting pleasure. And we're reminded of that. We're strengthened in that truth when we watch and pray. And when we are weak, is strong. Back to our text. Jesus has exhorted Peter. Will the disciples now lay hold of a desire greater than sleep? In his mind, in his spirit, perhaps. But the flesh is weak. How weak? It can't even stay awake for an hour when your Lord and Master is in agony. That's how weak. Beloved, put no confidence in the flesh. Alexander McLaren, in his, his exposition on this, he wrote it this way, considering Jesus' command here in verse 38, saying, quote, Watchfulness and prayer are inseparable. 
The one discerns dangers, the other arms against them. Watchfulness keeps us prayerful, and prayerfulness keeps us watchful. To watch without praying is presumption. To pray without watching is hypocrisy. What a glorious truth. Back to our text, verse 39 now, beloved, verse 39. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Now, a good leader doesn't just say. A good leader shows. They demonstrate. I've told you to stay awake and pray for your own good. I've told you that dangers lurk not only in your own heart, but soon there's a horde coming across the Kidron Valley. Here. Watch me for a second time. Demonstrate to you what you must do. And he went away again and prayed. Now, I don't know about you, but well, I would like to think in that moment that I would have arose with the Lord, that I would have knelt with him in that garden. We would all like to think that of ourselves. Yet the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Nevertheless, our good shepherd models for us the way. Well, you can lead a horse to water. Verse 40. Verse 40. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Now let us take a word of caution with verse 40. The temptation with verse 40 is to focus on the disciples again. The temptation is to sit aloft in some kind of judgment over them. Or to almost look comedically at them. And to be sure, we have much to learn and to glean and, glean and to apply from them at this point. Uh, these embarrassing actions, almost, of Peter, James, and John. But that is not the heart of what we are to see. Now, as easy as it would be to just take verse 40 as another disciple beatdown, it's not. The glory in verse 40, again, is the heart of Jesus. We've already taught this with his first coming to them as they slept. And we will teach it here again, here in the second. And in fact, in the third verse, a third time. In the midst of unimaginable cosmic agony, as he who knew no sin would become sin for us, as perfect, eternal unity and fellowship of the Trinitarian Godhead would be turned on its head with a pain to nearly stop his heart, with a stress to mix blood with his sweat. In that moment, he is thinking about his disciples. He is concerned for them. Do you see the heart of your Savior, Harrison Hills? Modeling prayer was not the only attribute Jesus was modeling for us. Come to me, for I am meek and lowly. That the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Hebrews tells us Christ is a merciful and faithful high priest. Oh, hear the prophet Isaiah. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. 
In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosoms. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. The main point of this text is not to look at the weak disciples. The point is to look at your Savior. Is he not more precious than silver? More costly than gold? More beautiful than diamonds? Is he not worth anything that he would ask of us? As we look to Gethsemane, in the darkness of the night, Jesus is meant to sparkle before us. If we miss that, we've missed the text. Finally, verse 41 and 42, I'll read them as one. 41 and 42. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. It's time. From Genesis 3.15, it's go time. And it's not a weakened Christ at this moment who says this to his disciples. This is our Savior who not once, not twice, but three times has prayed. Arising now. One account, gospel account, even telling us that an angel came to minister to him. He arises with fullness of resolve. Strength and power are in his voice. Having triumphed in his submission, it is time. And his eyes are now fixed on Calvary. His jaw is set like a flint. Jesus knows 16, Psalm 16.10. He knows you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Three times he prayed. Three times. Beloved, without the triumphant submission of Gethsemane, there would be no cross, no resurrection. You and I aren't together today. April 18th, 1521. Luther cried out in the dead of night, full of dread, anxiety, fear, death, of course, being possible. Luther embraced the command of Gethsemane. To watch and pray. Without this night, the 95 theses wouldn't matter. There wouldn't be a bold stand in front of the greatest known powers of the world. His heart would have failed him. Scripture recorded Jesus' words for us that night. It magnified the prayer of a heart that would bring redemption to his people. Crying, Abba, Father. But you'll recall, someone was listening to Luther's words that fretful night as well. Would you like to hear them? Would you like to hear Luther's Gethsemane? A cry from the depths. Listen to this battle-weary reformer. Oh God, almighty God everlasting, how dreadful is the world. Behold, how its mouth opens to swallow me up, and how small is my faith in thee. Oh, the weakness of the flesh and the power of Satan. 
If I am to depend upon any strength of this world, all is over. The knell is struck. Sentence is gone forth. Oh God, oh God, oh thou my God, help me against the wisdom of this world. Do this, I beseech thee. Thou shouldst do this by thy own mighty power. The work is not mine, but thine. I have no business here. I have nothing to contend for with these great men of the world. I would gladly pass my days in happiness and peace, but the cause is thine, and it is righteous and everlasting. O oh Lord, help me. O oh, faithful and unchangeable God, I lean not upon man. It were vain. Whatever is of man is tottering. Whatever proceeds from him must fail. My God, my God, dost thou not hear? My God, art thou no longer living? Nay, thou canst die. Thou dost but hide thyself. Thou hast chosen me for this work. I know it. Therefore, O God, accomplish thy own will. Forsake me not for the sake of thy well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ. My defense, my buckler, my stronghold. Lord, where art thou? My God, where art thou? Come, I pray thee, I am ready. Behold me prepared to lay down my life for thy truth, suffering like a lamb, for the cause is holy. It is thine own. I will not let thee go, nor yet for all eternity. And though the world should be thronged with devils, and this body, which is the work of thine hands, should be cast forth, Trodden underfoot, cut in pieces, consumed to ashes, my soul is thine. Yes, I have thine own word to assure me of it. My soul belongs to thee, and I will abide with thee forever. Amen. O oh God, send help. Amen. Out of that came the Reformation. Let us watch and pray. May we be found awake as one who is under obligation to our Lord, who is eager to share our beautiful Savior, and who is not ashamed of the gospel. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, if only we could pray as Jesus prayed. If only we could pray as Luther prayed. Lord, we are indeed helpless without you. But Lord, we have a mighty word, full of grace, hope, joy, truth. And Lord, every fruit of the Spirit has been given to us in full measure. Lord, as the darkness of Gethsemane goes with us, Lord, you have sparkled before us. You have been made beautiful in our eyes through the garden. And we thank you for this. We ask that you would keep each of the beloved until we can meet again. In Jesus' mighty name.